waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. Predictable differences in normal adult minds. What is the normal mind? Why do ordinary adults have so many differences or conflicts about what they see as real or true? Perhaps you've pondered this and you've looked at astrology, personality typologies, the Myers-Briggs type indicator, human design, or some other set of categories to try to figure out how you are different from other people. Or maybe you've given up trying to figure that out. In this episode, Polly and Mike will introduce a map for adult development that is grounded in extensive scientific research and can serve as a new way of understanding adult differences. This is a conversation about how awakening can mean very different things to different adults, and in some ways, predictable differences in seeing and hearing and feeling the awakening experience. Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. So, one reason why we did this podcast, as I recall, is that we wanted to, to introduce this idea or this model or paradigm called stage development or stage theory, or sometimes it's called adult stage theory. That paradigm comes from psychological research that began principally in the 1980s and it extended the ideas and research of a biologist who became a psychologist 
Jean Piaget, a Swiss guy who was originally a biologist. Piaget was interested in how is it that the human child understands space, time, and causality without learning about it. Like kids don't have to be taught, for example, numeration, like basically what's more and less, they do have to be taught to count. They also don't have to be taught causality, like how one thing sets off a reactions, chain of reactions that leads eventually to another thing. So for example, kids that are nine months old, uh, you can hide something from them and they'll go looking for it. Whereas that's not true for a four month old. Uh, you hide something from a four month old, they won't go looking for it, it disappears. And then as kids grow and develop, various frames of reference or ways of seeing things change for all kids. So that by the time kids are about six years old, they all have categories for identity, for group differences. They all understand to some extent the sequence of time. It takes them a while to get that tomorrow is not the same as yesterday, but they get it. And they also all understand the idea or the, let's say, the meaning of a means to an end. Like you, you do something in order to get, you cause something to happen. You can do one thing in order to get to another thing, in order to get to another thing, in order to open a bag of candy. So Piaget was interested in what is this kind of human design that allows our children to make sense of where they are born, of what they are born into. They're born into space-time and they learn how to make sense of space-time without being taught about it. And what he found out principally was it's through engagement with space-time. So little infants engage on a sensory motor, they kick and they push and they grasp and they hold and so on. So that through an embodiment thing, and as you grow and develop, you're engaging with it by observing how things happen. And then eventually through language and categories of thought that way. So Piaget said, okay, kids in all cultures have a sequence of development that leads them from being completely naive to completely informed about how to live here. And nobody really teaches them that. And so then a number of researchers and some of them were researchers into morality, moral development, some on religion, some on interpersonal, interpersonal frames of reference, differences in identity and the way we see ourselves and others, uh, some also on emotional development, were trained in a Piagetian method and wondered if you could apply this method to people that were teenagers and adults and see how there might be a systematic and almost entirely predictable unfolding of adult development, of development that involves humans everywhere without reference to culture or language, or largely without, let's say, depending on culture, language, socioeconomic status. Uh, so all of these kinds of things had to be ruled out, like socioeconomic status or or language or culture to, to begin to look at 
are there stages of development that are predictable for adults? And, and the answer was yes, and it took a long time to establish that. And I'm gonna mention some of the researchers here and then I'm gonna mention the researcher that I know best. And so Lawrence Kohlberg in moral development, James Fowler in the development of the stages of faith, somebody named John Perry, intellectual and emotional development in the college years, Graves, I'm not remembering the, the first name of Graves, I don't know that theory so well, looks at, I think, principally interpersonal development, then Ken Wilber on integral stages of development, and then finally, the one I know best, the, my mentor actually at Washington University was Jane Lovinger, uh, stages of ego development, ego meaning here, the experience of self and other. So all of these researchers established a method for investigating uh, differences that would be systematic, predictable across cultures for adult development. And they started collecting data, building their theories and so on before computers could sort through data about humans. I'm not sure why these stage theories dropped away as a big part of focus in the 21st century, but they tended to drop away. I have my own hypotheses about why they're not so popular still, but researchers went on using them uh, and a lot of people know that Ken Wilber makes great use about these stage theories. And all of the all of the main stage researchers do have followers continuing development of their work. So it's today, what I want to do is just kind of talk with you and introduce this idea of stage development for adults, an overview of it, not looking at the specific stages, but the logic of it. So I wonder, you know, I just introduced gave a background for the whole thing. It's not comprehensive, but I think it's good enough. I wonder what you're thinking or how how you are thinking about stage theory. I know it was a relatively new idea to you a while, not too long ago, I think. Um, so tell me your thoughts about it. Part of my interest in having this conversation with you had to do with, I, I recall asking you the question, how do I grow up? And I've begun to notice since I've become aware of and started reading more about stages of development, how understanding or trying to understand how other people perceive what I'm saying is connected to their worldview and even more specifically to what, what you've just described, the stage that they're on. And I'd, I'd want to go back to a term I introduced in an earlier episode, Umwelt this German word, which in German apparently means environment, but the way it's used in ethology, it's really about the subjective experience or perceptions of any organism. In essence, the awareness of our awareness. And I find it fascinating that they used a German, that they chose a German word for environment, because I think it in a way speaks to where I perceive you're coming from in terms of the shattering this illusion between an inner and an outer internal and an external reality that really that boundary is perhaps learned it and it's influenced and affected by the culture we're born into the family the time the place and then how we learn our school environment all of these things come together to help shape who i become 
as I grow up. Right. And in a way that is not arbitrary, that's the issue that I think makes this whole way of thinking um, challenging for people. I, I'm not sure, but I think Umwelt started being used in psychology through the work of Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who was a systems theorist. He wanted to look at the individual in a context, uh, kind of contextualized in one system, then a larger system, then a larger system. It, it's true that the way that I look at the snow globe, the snow globe is the full subjective experience of the individual, which includes the inner and the outer. And so you could call it the umwelt. It's um, in Zen, Sasaki Joshi, Sasaki Joshi calls it your dwelling place. So, you know, he, he says every, every body, every body that occurs in space has a dwelling place. Uh, you know, we could think of that biologically, like there's an environment that supports that organism. Or we could think of it the way we'll be thinking of it, which is psychologically, which is that everything that you perceive, everything that you hear, that you see, that you feel, that you understand, that you witness, everything is through the lens that you bring. So that it doesn't matter if you're reading the data from a machine, if you're counting apples on the table, or if you're looking through the Hubble telescope, you cannot get away from your subjectivity, your first person experience. And again, humans can become aware of that. They can investigate it. They can investigate it in physics and it's you know, called relativity or uncertainty principle or observer phenomena. When there's an observer, it changes what's going on. People can notice that themselves in relating to a partner, a sibling, that our memories of something that happened even moments ago are very different. I perceive certain things and others perceive other things. And I will be very convinced by my perceptions because I have what's called confirmation bias. That is, I'm looking to affirm what I already believe. Uh, Jean Piaget called this assimilation, that I assimilate what I'm perceiving to a scheme or a map that I already have. And I will only change that map or scheme if I absolutely have to, because it's upsetting to change it. Again, the ontological shock. You know, I'm moving along and I'm feeling like, okay, this is who I am. I'm here and I grew up there and I have this kind of family. And then suddenly I have an ontological shock and I'm outside of that body and I'm looking at it from a universal perspective. And it seems trivial, the little life I'm living. And all of that still I'm having through a first person experience, even though I'm popping out of my typical identity. So, you know, we can become aware of our umwelt. We can become aware of our snow globe. We can become aware of our prejudices and our associations, our implicit associations. But even with all of that, 
we may still feel like every individual is absolutely unique and there's no map at all, you know, for adult development. And there's no, there's no better or worse. There's no more complex or less complex. And we might feel like we cherish that idea of what I would call hyper-individualism because it's true rather than because we come from North America. The Umbelt idea, I think, comes from Yuri Bronfen Brenner. People can look that up and see. And systems theory does contribute to stage theory. I know you studied with Richard DeCharms at Washington University, and he was studying personal causation, how people come to feel that they're agents in their own lives, that they can make a difference, that they can change things, and even that they can change something small, like, you know, how do you know that you could move that vase of flowers to a different place and it would make the room different? I, I, I found a quote from Anthony DeMello from Awareness, The Perils and Opportunities of Reality. It reminded me about the work you're doing with Real Dialogue, and I think it connects to what we're talking about in this episode. Quote, people don't really want to grow up. People don't really want to change. People don't really want to be happy. As someone so wisely said to me, quote, don't try to make them happy. You'll only get in trouble. Don't try to teach a pig to sing. It wastes your time and it irritates the pig. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then a, a, a shorter one. You're so proud of your intelligence, said the master, quote, you're like a condemned man, proud of the vastness of his prison cell. Hmm. And I think this brings us back to worldviews and waking up. Waking up is breaking out of that prison cell, even if the awakening is temporary. And so in the conversation, it's how do we integrate this and bring it back? And I think one of the great challenges we have is that we swim through language as fish through water, potentially unaware of the medium that we use to communicate. So when I try to express something going on within myself to you, I not only have to rely on you to pay attention, to listen and hear the words, but then to infer what my intention is. And the words themselves are only symbols pointing to something that you have to interpret. And in this way, I think we run into the challenges of conflict and maybe bringing it back uh, to what is reality, what is truth, especially in human interaction, because our subjective experiences may align on so many different levels that we assume that, that we're communicating. When in fact, without checking in with each other and being curious to find out how the other perceives what I just said, I really have no way of knowing if you understood what I intended to express. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the case. And I would bet that it's even more the case if, as many in North America, if you know only one language, because language shapes the way you perceive things. It, it shapes what you allow your ears to hear because language predisposes us. For example, I mean, I'll say years ago when I was studying Clifford Garretts, the anthropologist Clifford Garretts, 
through him, I came to find out that a particular group of Eskimos called the Copper Eskimos, I don't know anything about them except what Clifford Garrett's told me, that they don't have personal pronouns. But their verb forms, the forms of their verb, verbs, um, will indicate whether the action comes from over here or over there. So there's still the sense of agency that, that individuals are creating things and they're acting on their own and that they have responsibility for what they do even without personal pronouns as a language feature. However, it does make a difference to not have a personal pronoun driving everything. If you can imagine the identity is much more of a group-based identity. And so that sense that we have of North America, North Americans, like we have this sense, like you have to get me, you have to know my pronoun, you have to accept my pronoun. Well, if you were in a culture that had no pronouns, you'd be in such a different snow globe. It's really hard to imagine that. So language itself creates reality. And then we refer to these words like self, for example, our identity, and we assume that other people embrace what we're saying from the perspective that we're saying it. And that's an impossibility. And, and the less that you know about the complexity of the situation that you're in, this adult human situation, the less that you know, the more likely you are to stereotype and to assume that other people are a certain way because you feel they're that way, because you experience them that way. And it's more likely to be the case that you don't stop yourself. And so if you are at a stage of development as an adult that conforms more or less to the idea of what we could call all or nothing thinking, you know, it's a good person or a bad person. It's a smart person or a stupid person. It's a prejudiced person or a non-prejudiced person. It's a, you know, it's a Christian evangelical, or it's a, I don't know what, or you know, it's a believer of Islam, or it's an infidel. So if you have these categories that are very strongly all or nothing, then you're very likely to assume that everybody can be put into those categories. And so that's, that's a kind of really difficult, really difficult irony for adults that um, there are plenty of walking around healthy people who cannot experience complexity when it comes to other people because they haven't yet got that window. They don't have a window that they can look through and see that there are many ways of seeing the world. And there are many ways of being. So yes, language, language is, plays a big role. Also, it's almost impossible, unless you study these stage theories, it's almost impossible to describe them. And I know a lot of people say that Ken Wilber is hard to, hard to understand, but Ken Wilber is pretty good at describing it. And, you know, he's, he's one of the first people to say, you do have to do something in addition to waking up in order to, let's say, encounter the great love that is behind all the, 
let's say, you know, props and personas and so on. But you, you can't just wake up. You also have to grow up. And then he adds clean up and show up. But it is the case that growing up itself and having at least some modesty about your point of view, it's very hard. It's very hard, especially when you defend yourself, you know, when you're emotionally threatened and you feel something's uh, at risk. The idea, and you know, I know I'm saying a lot here, but I also do have, this is sort of my, one of my areas of expertise, having worked with Jane Lavender for 10 years and I was a research assistant and I knew her, she's a fantastic human being. I mean, she was a person who was a deep, deep, profound scientist. She, she really practiced the spirituality of science. She believed in it deeply. She felt that scientific investigation required absolute honesty and never distorting any of your data and never assuming without making a hypothesis that you knew what was going on. You know, you have to make the hypothesis and then investigate it. And I did really learn how to be a scientist from studying with her. She was a, a huge taskmaster. I mean, she was, she demanded so much of her students that many of her graduate students quit. Very few finished actually doing their dissertations with her because you had to be willing to be humiliated. Well, I already had a lot of Zen training and Zen training in those days depended on being humiliated. Like you had to be humiliated again and again because they were weakening your sense of ego and uh, so I wasn't uh, unfamiliar with being humiliated. And so I could see what Jane was doing, but you know, when she would ask a graduate student, well, I mean, I, saw, I heard her say to one person, you don't have the language to ask that question. Now that person did not come back to the seminar ever again. <laughs> so, you know, it sounded really haughty, but she was accurate. The person was not asking the question that she wanted to ask because she didn't, she wasn't at the stage of development where she could really ask it in terms of its complexity. So you can see how easily this stage theory stuff can drop into feeling insulting, feeling unfair, feeling like, you know, who do you think you are? You know, you know something more than I know kind of thing. So I'm, I'm putting a lot of things out there and I, I know we'll go back and unpack them a lot, but. Just again, tell me your thoughts about this. Well, I, you touched on you touched on so many different points. You touched on, or or at least I I heard you touch on subjectivity and the uniqueness of each of our experiences, our beliefs and values, how we process and make sense of the world through experience, how we learn to make sense of the world. Also, I believe you touched on cognitive biases that we have that may distort the way we think there are just differences but they're profound and so the way you remember something or the way you understand two and two equals four may seem like a distortion to me but not to you that's why things like um fake news are so hard to sort out because the assumptions that some people make would agree with what other people consider to be fake. But for the people who, let's say, are the all or nothing thinkers, they think that's true. And, you know, and it's not. So when, 
when Jane says, you know, you don't have the language to ask the question, she's really saying, you're at a stage of development where your thinking and your assumptions do not allow you to understand certain kinds of complexity. And so when you ask the question, what does this mean, for example, you're looking for a certain kind of answer. The world is full of people, full, really full of people that are pretty conformist thinkers, all or nothing thinkers, and they're looking for certain kinds of answers. And those answers are not distortions. You know, that's why it really makes it hard to say that's a cognitive distortion. Well, yes, it can be. And you can't show that it is a cognitive distortion, for example, to be anxious you know, constantly about germs or something. From another perspective, that person who's anxious about germs may be in a process of development. I find it intriguing that you brought up germs. <laughs> I was thinking about, I think, the, the Hungarian doctor. Semmelweis, who in the mid-1800s, he observed doctors going from doing autopsies on cadavers to delivering babies. Oh, yes. And then he suggested maybe they should wash their hands because there was a very high infant mortality rate, and this was before germ theory. But he made the connection in his mind between touching the dead body and then delivering a child. and. He advised doctors at the time to wash with solution and infant mortality decreased by an enormous amount. But what was shocking to him was that doctors wouldn't accept that it was connected to washing their hands. And I remember being shocked by reading a headline, this was before COVID, that even to this day, many medical professionals were not washing or scrubbing before going into a sterile environment for surgery. So that there's still some resistance to accepting what we know is a fact, that well, that act of washing our hands makes a big difference. This was brought home by COVID especially. Well, you know, and again, it's interesting to perceive this from the perspective of the person who says, I don't believe it, because there's no one-to-one not, you know, it's like getting pregnant. I mean, you can have intercourse many times and you don't get pregnant. You don't wash your hands many times and you don't get sick. And so in a very simple way, you could say that's not causal. So it took a long time for humans to recognize that intercourse was connected to pregnancy because it didn't happen that you got that the woman got pregnant every time she had intercourse. It seems more like the blood that came out of her body monthly stopped coming out when she got pregnant. So she was holding this blood, and that might have been the reason. You know, the idea was she caused a pregnancy from holding the blood inside. So it was a solo operation. And similarly, you could say, well, listen, I run a farm and I don't wash my hands and I'm hardy because I'm not always washing my hands. And that can also be true. So, you know, when there's not a one-to-one -one relationship, like, for example, if you smash your finger in a door, you will notice that every time you put your finger in the door, it is painful. I mean, in other words, it's pretty much a one-to-one, -one, you know, that you will keep your finger out of the door 
but many, many things in life are not that obvious on a causal level. And so in a sense, you need a hypothesis to figure them out. Like, you know, you notice that not every time you have intercourse, you get pregnant and you look at the total picture, eventually you can come to the idea there's more than one person involved in this thing. But it, so I'm really sort of pulling this apart a little bit with the germ theory even because paranoia about germs, hypochondriasis, as well as not washing your hands and assuming that you're safe, all of these things are part of human life. And they're argued strenuously. If you've ever been with someone who's hypochondriacal, you cannot argue with them about their beliefs. They've already got the beliefs very heavily rationalized. Anything you say, they'll say why that's not true. This window that we use to look at what we call reality or the world out there, the window has within it, you know, like I would say limited lenses, you know, but you can add more lenses or you can add new ways of seeing. But, you know, the thing about stage theory that's so hard for people to grasp is that you cannot intentionally move ahead developmentally. It's, it's situational and it takes a while and there's no way to skip a stage and it's not linear and it's hard to understand that it's not linear because it looks linear. And we're gonna talk about all of this. All of these things that seem so obvious from one perspective for humans can seem completely the opposite from another perspective. You know, and especially if they involve invisible, non-visible things like germs or identity, you could say gender. I'm reminded of the controversy on the internet that exploded over people's perception of a dress. I don't know if you remember this. Okay. Some people saw blue, some people saw gold. And so there was this crazy debate over which is real, what is true, how could we have these differences in color perception? And I think in a way it's it's easier to understand it or see it if we use an example from visual perception. We've all seen a mirage and we've eventually learned what a mirage is because it never arrives. But on our own personal experience, how would we know if we're seeing a mirage, unless there's someone to reflect back and share and dialogue about our perception, who may have a different perception that may open our awareness to seeing something we may not have seen before. I think this, this brings us back to this idea of why being open-minded and having empathy for and curiosity to try to understand where these differences arise and to try to explore how we see things differently. I think the example you gave of fake news is another beautiful example. For some people, that fake news is their reality and they will defend it to the death like it was a real territory and that they were in a real conflict. And again, it's, it's with language, the notion of a real conflict as opposed to an imagined one. Well, and the idea also of defending to death does remind me of war. And, you know, real dialogue, one thing that both the skill and the facilitation method are aimed at 
is lowering emotional threat. So defenses aren't so activated because again, if you get back to the fake news or you get back to hypochondriasis or the color of the dress, if individuals feel emotionally threatened, they're going to defend to the death because that emotional threat feels like my existence is under threat here. And you're telling me that I shouldn't pay attention to this thing when my existence is under threat. I can't breathe if I don't pay attention to this. This is where humans are very problematic for each other. And there are systematic differences between humans and that's where stage theory comes in that can be understood and used as maps and those maps are typologies. So I wanted to spend a moment talking about typology just because I'm sure there are already a lot of listeners who are adequately confused about all of this so that <laughs> we, we're kind of loading on a lot of things here. And I'd like, to, I'd like to be sure that we sort out a few things by the end of this podcast. So I, I, would, I would like you to tell me what you think a typology is. And I'm gonna say that astrology is a typology. The Myers-Briggs type inventory is a typology. Human design is a typology. All of these are pretty popular. They get around a lot. I would say these are mental maps. There are structures that we build in our minds to make sense of our experience and reality. And they tend to be self-reinforcing. We tend to fit the data into what we perceive or believe. And we either dismiss or ignore or don't become aware of what doesn't fit into that worldview or map or typology. So I, I would say that the typologies that I mentioned are often used for sorting differences between people. In other words, you know, you want to let other people know why you're so tidy. So you say, well, I'm a Virgo and I have, let's say I'm a Virgo and I have Capricorn rising or something uh, astrologically. And what you're trying to convey to others is I have a certain kind of personality and I'm using astrology to explain it. And so please don't attack me for my tidiness or my standards for being on time or whatever. So I believe that astrology particularly is used by people to try to explain differences and differences in personality, to try to understand why, why they feel comfortable with some people and not other people. And I think astrology has been used you know, for centuries and it's different in Asia than it is in the West and has been. And I believe it has been used to try to sort, it's almost like sorting out crops, you know, the crops, things that are born at this time of the year versus born at that time of the year. And so there are different crops you can grow if they are planted at different times of the year. So that's one kind of typology that's used for the reasons of trying to cope with differences and to be kind about differences and to be generous, let's say, about differences. But then there are people, and you might be one, who are very skeptical of astrology. So they won't even engage in talking about those differences because they've decided that that map is not scientific. And I don't know, but I wonder if you might be a person who doesn't engage in astrology because you, you believe the map is not very scientific. I, honestly, I, I sometimes do pay attention to astrologers. I find it interesting 
just to test whether or not what they may say happens on a particular day, if it's a very specific reading. But again, for me, it's about reality testing. I'm skeptical of a lot of things. One of the issues I have with typology is this map contains boxes that I'm going to put labels on experience or people and then try to fit them into a box. Once I do that, they're no longer a living human being. They're a category that I've created in my mind that I'm going to generally reinforce with my perceptions of my experience with that person and my interactions. So I, I try not to do it, but I think it's an automatic function of a certain level of awareness, like talking about fighting to the death is an emotional territorial aspect of being a mammal. It's built into all mammals to fight over territory and defend in the same way that if we create through our minds these maps, we're inhabiting maps. We've forgotten that it really refers to the thing it's pointing to sometimes, and we mistake the map for the territory. Well, humans, part of what their territory is, is abstraction. And, you know, things that don't exist in what we would call the physical world. So we exist on a lot of abstraction instructions, you know, like identity, self, gender, religion, money, all of these things are abstractions. They don't exist anywhere. Uh, and so we can fight about them to the death because they don't exist. And we all have a different point of view about what they mean. Or we, let's say it's not infinitely different because we find our own tribes who agree with us. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com, where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app, and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation, where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.